Let's pray. Lord, we're here tonight to make a difference. We're here tonight to learn. And I'm just asking now, Lord, that our hearts would be like Jesus, that we would care and give and bless. Now, Lord, you do this for us all the time. You've been blessing us. Now I'm praying, Lord, bless us as we go through this material here this evening. May we receive the same kind of sense on the inside that those men on the road to Emmaus had. May we sense your spirit with us. Bless us as we go now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I want to talk to you a little bit about conspiracy theories. This man here was a probably the most famous, uh, I'll call it functionary of conspiratorial thinking. He was one of the wealthiest men in the world, Howard Hughes. And he was afraid everybody was out to get him. He became a germaphobe. And he became a, uh, well, he isolated himself to the nth degree. He, he had a desire. He built the world's largest airplane. It was built out of wood. And it rarely flew. But this thing had eight engines on it. And it was just, Howard uh, Hughes was an amazingly intelligent person. He got so sick, he had to lay in a hospital bed for weeks and months. And while he was there, he called in his engineers and had them redesign. And much of the hospital beds that uh, you enjoy with the comfort of legs and, and head going up and down and all of this is a function of his sickness and his interest in making life more comfortable. I mean, this airplane was of phenomenal size. Now, we did not know how his eccentricities would someday work for the benefit of the United States. But building this airplane was a phenomenal thing. And when you compare the size of this airplane, even to modern-day superliners, you see that the Spruce Goose had a bigger wingspan than the Soviet's largest airplane. And America's, uh, the Boeing 747 is in the blue. The Airbus 380-800, which is that huge airplane that they're only going to continue making for a little bit, is pink. And the Russian airplane is the green. But I'll tell you, the, the Spruce Goose remains much larger. Now, how did Howard Hughes end up benefiting the United States? The Soviets had a sub that sank. And uh, it went down very... It was, when, it, when it came apart, it was a, a sub that I think uh, exploded. And when it came apart and sunk to the bottom, it was in some very, very deep water. The Soviets felt quite self-assured it was water far too deep for anyone to rescue it or to get it from. So they weren't terribly worried that somebody like the Americans would be able to get it. But the CIA had a plan. And their plan was to get with Howard Hughes, perfect cover, have him build a boat that was supposedly for plucking manganese off the bottom of the ocean. But instead, they created a submarine with a huge claw. And this boat, several years later, because of course you can imagine it took a while to build this boat, this boat went out into the ocean ostensibly to make money for Howard Hughes. This boat was actually specifically constructed under the guise of collecting uh, this mineral, this metal. And of course, this picture is old here. In this picture, I think you're looking at it after it had been bought and been used for uh, oil work. But they actually took that boat and they, they got very close to where, the, where this Soviet sub was sunk. And the Soviets actually shadowed this, this boat. 
And they could see the Soviet boat that had shadowed them. The Soviets were watching for a while. And they actually released this submarine out of this boat. It went, oh, I want to say close to a couple miles down into the depths of the ocean. Spotted the sub. Put its claw on the sub. The Americans all the while are a little nervous about the Soviets. But about the time the Americans are getting it, the Soviet boat gives three toots, which I guess is kind of an international signal for see you later. And the Soviet boat pulls off, not knowing that the Americans are right within reach of getting that Soviet sub. As they're bringing the sub up, there's this terrible shudder, uh, almost earthquake-like. What they discovered was that as they were lifting the sub off the bottom of the ocean, that it actually got partway up and then broke apart. They didn't get a big segment. It didn't turn out to be as much of a technological treasure trove as they thought it was going to be. But they got the sub. Now, why am I sharing this illustration with you at the very beginning? Because for years, the Soviets had a, uh, the CIA had a phrase they used. And when the CIA actually got to where they were entering into the modern social media world, they, they, they started their first tweet with the phrase they had used when people would ask them about things they couldn't tell. And they would say, we can neither confirm nor deny. That was their phrase, that this is our first tweet. They were having a little bit of fun. Now, I'm using that tonight for this reason, because I'm about to rehearse a little bit with you of what we went over last night, and I'm about to show you how hard the devil is working to make sure that when we study prophecy, we can neither confirm or deny anything. As a matter of fact, God wants us to have confidence that He not only knows the future, but He has control to protect and take us through the storms that are on the way. But I want you to know, God's Word is anchored in history and can give us a sense of what's coming, even though sometimes we have to wait for it to come. There are three ways of looking at prophecy. One says it's already happened. One says that it's all in the future. And one says that it's anchored in time. And that is the method of interpretation that we believe in, that God anchors it in time. And because it's anchored in time, we can understand what's coming. Now, we've been using this text an awful lot. I hope it's seared into your mind so that when someone says to you, well, how do you know that these things are true? You can say because the sanctuary is God's model of the progress of salvation history. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? And we've been going over the dynamics of this sanctuary multiple times. Christ is the Lamb. Christ is the mediator. And Christ is the judge hoping to vindicate us. To look at it another way, Christ is our deliverer. Christ is the power through a new relationship with His Father. And Christ is going to restore us. To recognize that this was fulfilled in the cross, the relational power of the door opened up to the Father through Christ as He's inaugurated for His mediatorial ministry when He went back to heaven is when the Pentecostal power is poured out. And the three angels' message are announcing the fact that the last cycle of salvation history is underway. So our record is cleansed in the courtyard. Our relationship is renewed through Christ's mediatorial ministry, and we are guaranteed reinstatement when the judge says they're safe to say. Now, God always sends a message to prepare His people for major worldwide events which are going to affect their destiny. So I want to know, who did God send before Jesus came? John the Baptist. It's interesting that Jesus will take 
Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses of the Old Testament, 5 and 6, where it says that God is going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus will say that John the Baptist is Elijah if you can accept it. Now, he's not literally Elijah. He's his own person. He happens to be a relative of Jesus. But this promise in Malachi... Jesus would apply in measure to John, but it applies even more because what Malachi is referring to is not the mediatorial and suffering cycle of Jesus. It's not him coming as a, as a suffering servant and as a lamb, the lamb of God. When Malachi is ending his storyline, he's talking about before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So we should be expecting that someone with confidence and someone that can take a challenge and be in a prophetic showdown like Elijah will be, raise, will be raised up to give the final message. Now, it's a big deal to me. I, I'm going to continue challenging you. How are you going to keep from reading in the Bible things you want to see? Have you ever just sat for a little while and said, how could Jesus come, raise people from the dead, cleanse lepers, make people blind from birth see, unstop the ears, loose the tongue, reconstitute shriveled hands, make bent ladies stand up straight. How could Jesus do all of this, but his own people rejected him? This should cause any person with any little bit of self-awareness to stop and say, man, if it could happen to them, what about me? This is a big, big deal. God came in the flesh. We talked last night about over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament declaring it. How is it that he could show up and manifest spiritual power like nobody else and yet still be rejected and worse than that, destroyed by his own people? The malice was so great, the angst and the animosity so intense that they would take a murderer by the name of Barabbas instead of Jesus on one of the holiest days of the year. The day of of Passover, which was to be the, the day of liberation from sin, was probably one of the darkest and most heinous days in human history. How does that happen? It happens because the human heart is deceitful. Now let's talk about deceit. Deceit is a word that's tied to honesty, isn't it? If you're being deceitful, you may not be telling an outright lie, but there's something going on that you don't want to be totally transparent. There's something about the human heart that struggles with honesty, especially if it involves the affections, the attitudes, the habits, the desires. I mean, let's face it. As a, a boy of 12 years old, Jesus is in the temple precincts and he's already teaching the doctors of the law. Some of them, I think, went away that day saying, I never, I've never seen that, I've never thought about that, but that kid's right. Some of them were offended that someone so much their junior could be teaching them things and the pride of their life put a roadblock up between him and his future ministry. Not all of them were so aged that 20 years later, Jesus wouldn't be remembered. Desperately wicked. Whenever I have to deal with someone who has blurred the lines relationally, they are not loving their wife anymore or they're not loving their husband like they should anymore. It's amazing. I've known people who are perfectly happy and married for 20, 25 years, and all of a sudden, it really wasn't all of a sudden, but over a period of time, all of a sudden, someone that I have known was loved 
and respected by their, their spouse, all of a sudden I find out that supposedly the spouse never loved them. And, and then they've got to go a little bit farther. They have to make the spouse into a bad person. And so now people that I knew to be over a period of years, I mean, I pastored in my last church over 19 years. That means I watched a generation. Those people were not strangers to me after 10 years. And after 15, they were less of a stranger. And so when I have someone saying to me, oh, he's a verbal abuser, it's amazing how the human heart readjust its thinking to do what its feelings want to do once we lose the anchor of truth. And so I'm appealing to you tonight. You might learn something new. Those watching on the internet, you might hear something new. Are you willing to let the Spirit of God lead you in the journey of more understanding and the faithful application of truth to life? The human heart is deceitful. And when, when it's convicted by the Spirit, sometimes the heart says, Lord, forgive me. And other times it says, don't talk to me about that. It's important, friends, that tonight we're willing to let Jesus search our hearts. Now, I want to ask you something. How central to the life of the Hebrews was the sanctuary? I, I'm talking about it an awful lot. Am I overdoing it? Let's see. Look at that picture. This was the sanctuary in the wilderness after God said, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell amongst them. There were four tribes on every side of the compass around that sanctuary. It was so orderly. It was right in the middle of the camp. And this artist's rendition has lots of activity around it. But let's go uh, past the knowledge of God's desire to dwell amongst them. And let's remember that this sanctuary was made according to a pattern. According to all that I show you that is in the pattern of the tabernacle. So there was a pattern of which this would be a replica. And the pattern of all its furnishings, just as you shall make it. It appears that, that God is communicating through Exodus with a little emphasis. It's not just that the building is patterned after the pattern. It's that the, the uh, actual furniture is too. And we know that the author of Hebrews assures us that what was on earth was a shadow, which means it wasn't the real McCoy. It was a replica. It was a shadow of the heavenly things. So let's take a little tour here, and let's imagine that we're in the mountains surrounding Sinai. You see that little wisp? This is the cloud of the presence here down in the camp. What you're looking at now is an animation. All those, uh, those lines are paths through the tribes of Israel as they're laid out. It's like we're flying in in an airplane down towards the sanctuary. And the closer we get, pretty soon we're going to be able to see, oh, those are people. And those are tents. This was placed precisely in the middle of the camp. And it was set up with one entrance, representing Jesus Christ, the only way to the Father and the only journey to salvation. And as we come down in in our personal drone here. We're going to come down in through the entrance. We're going to see that it was quite a magnificent dwelling. Uh, the sanctuary, the wilderness tabernacle was used for about 500 years, and it was amazing in its beauty and its simplicity. The altar of sacrifice there where the lamb would be burned after it was slain, 
And here, the bronze labor to wash, you come into the holy place. You can see the light from the candelabra, the seven-branch candlestick. The walls were all covered in gold, so it had quite a brilliance. On the other side, the table of showbread, representing the provision of Christ to meet all of our needs. And there before the veil that separates us is the altar of incense. Blood was put on the horns of that altar. And that sweet-smelling incense was the joy of God in the sense that someday these sacrifices would make all things different. Behind the veil was the most holy place. And you see an artist's rendition of the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. Between the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, which that lid was called the mercy seat, this was absolutely central to the experience of the Israelites. It was central again when Solomon built the temple. That temple lasted for about 500 years, and then it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah had told them, surrender, it'll be okay. Even Nebuzaradan, the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's armies, would say to Jeremiah, this didn't have to happen. Why it's happening is because you folks are sinners. My loose paraphrase. Nobody wanted to destroy that temple. And nobody thought after the history of Israel that it could be destroyed. But unfortunately, rebellion led to the animosity of those Babylonians. And when they finally got in the city the last time, remember I told you three times Nebuchadnezzar came. And on the last time, after an 11-year rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar was done. And he destroyed the city. He was to be the chastising rod of God for the Israelites, but he was not to do as much as he did. And God will write in the Scriptures how he was going to pay him back. Now we see in the centrality of the sanctuary those three phases of Christly ministry. Mediator, well actually sacrifice, mediator, and judge. So when we come to this text and it says under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, we know we're dealing with that single day of atonement. It's the only phase of Christ's ministry that it could be pointed to. Daniel is very clear. Now, I spent a little bit of time today doing a little research because uh, when I present this, I have to point out some very interesting phenomena. This prophecy of the 2,300 days, 490 years for Israel and the other 110, 1,810 for the rest of the world is such an amazing prophecy that it's either absolutely the most amazing prediction into the future or it's the biggest fraud. And I'm making a lot of stuff up. I've spent an awful lot of time in these seminars going over the simplicity of understanding the ministry of Christ. If you understand the basic flow of salvation history from sacrifice to mediator to judge, this stuff is not hard. Working through the details is interesting. It takes a little bit more substance. But the word understand is used 74 times in the Old Testament. All right? How many people? 74. Now, how many chapters are in the Old Testament? Anybody know? Well, there's six, six books in the Bible, but chapters, if we take the 39 books in the Old Testament, how many chapters? Well, there's 929. All right, I'm going to do a little math with you. 929 chapters. I'm, I've got a point. So the word understand is used once every 12 and a half chapters. How many chapters are in the book of Daniel? 12. There's 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. So on average... If it's used once every twelve and a half times, we should expect to read the word understand in the book of Daniel how many times? Slightly less than one. But I don't know how you read a word slightly less than the word. 
So when we look at the experience that is written about here as Daniel's praying, we have something interesting that develops. How many verses are in the Old Testament? Well, this is a big number, 23,145. So that means the word understand is used every 312 verses. I'm going somewhere. So let's look at how many times the word understand is used in Daniel 8 and 9. Okay? 27 verses in chapter 8 and 27 verses in chapter 9. For all you rapidly calculating mathematicians, that comes up to 54 verses. There's 54 verses in these two chapters. All right? Let's look. Follow along. I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man, referring to Daniel, understand the vision. Now it's the vision that we just read about in Daniel 8.14, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Gabriel, the one who took the place of Lucifer, who became Satan, stands in the presence of God. And someone told him, He's the same one that went down to Zechariah before Jesus was going to be born and before his own son, John the Baptist, would be born. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. There's one. So he came near where I stood. When he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, what did he say, friends? Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the what? The end. All right. So this thing's going to take us what the scope of Daniel says it's going to do. We're up to two times. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. We already read that verse. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. And he informed me and he talked with me and he said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. And we're going to get one more in here. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. Daniel 8 is when Daniel starts praying. He's obviously praying to understand. I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Do you get the idea God wants him to understand? Absolutely. And when you look at the frequency for those 54 verses, considering those 23,000 verses in the Bible, and the frequency of once every 12 and a half chapters, and once every 312 verses, the word understand is used 35 times more by way of mathematics than it is anywhere else in the Bible, at least on average. So there's this desire, and there's this promise, and there's this provision Daniel, you're going to understand about when the sanctuary shall be cleansed. We reminded ourselves that a day equals a year in Bible prophecy. And we looked at this last night, and what we saw is that 2,300 days, because it's prophetic literature, is really a huge span of time. Seventy of those weeks were cut off for Daniel's people. A very sober moment. But what a wonderful thing for God to place in time such a long probationary period. They were on the backside of being punished by Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, God had actually said, you know what, I mean business. When I send my prophets, I want you to listen. And eventually, after a showdown between Jeremiah and the false prophets of his day, Jeremiah's word is proven true. Nebuchadnezzar does come for the third time and he settles business in the name of God. And it's not pleasant. He goes beyond what God would have done. And yet it's what they chose. 
Those 490 years, Daniel is interested to see the conclusion of the 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied they'd be in a foreign land. But on the backside of that punishment, God is basically saying, now listen, I'm going to give you a chance to be faithful. 490 years. Those 490 years work out like such. We saw that 62 and 7 years were given for the process of rebuilding and the coming of the Messiah. We know that the Messiah is a word that means the anointed one. Jesus was baptized in A.D. 27. The decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, the final one in which provision was made, is 457 B.C. Jesus comes exactly on time, which is why the Scriptures will say the time is at hand, the time is fulfilled. Many people understood this. Now today, people want to neither confirm or deny the prophecies. Satan wants to make sure they don't point to Jesus and put, people don't see the absolute clarity of God's ability knowing that he knows the end from the beginning. But there was that one special week. It was the last week in which Jesus, having been baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit, would become the Messiah. He would begin a ministry of redemption, hopefully looking to draw his people to himself, confirm the covenant, and enable them to go to the world and tell the good news that God had actually come himself to set this thing right. It's an amazing story, friends. We get so used to hearing it. God came himself to fix the problem. He sent prophets before. We sacrificed lambs and goats and bulls. But Jesus came himself. God showed up. And for those three and a half years, Jesus gave evidence that he knew the scriptures. He was a man of integrity. He had power from above. And yet at the very end, he was rejected. People refused him. But he wasn't done. He sent his apostles, his church members, his disciples. But finally, after three and a half more years with many, many men and women proclaiming the power of Christ, the the fact that God came down and became us, the Jewish nation finally rejected that message and began persecuting the church, the new church, outright. And when that moment came, it was one thing when they had taken the life of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to send you some others to tell you again. We're going to offer forgiveness even though you killed me. That was a forgivable sin. Listen, the people who put Jesus on the cross could be forgiven. Good news, friends, because it was my sins and your sins that put him there. All of them were afraid to announce they knew him. Some of them ran away. All of them ran away, at least of the 11 that were, that were there. They all ran away. One said he never knew him. One sold him. That was a forgivable sin. But three and a half years later, when they go to stoning a man simply because he's talking about Jesus and he's saying, you murdered him, when they had a very newborn church, God says, that's it. There's opportunity now for you to still be received into this new fellowship, but our special relationship is done. 490 years. Those 1,810 years that are left are the mediatorial ministry of Jesus. And when we get to the time of the pronouncement of an hour of judgment, it's already underway. Now, I want you to know something. Christ was rejected by His own. I hate to think that if I had been there, I could have struggled like everybody else, but I don't know how I could not have. I had been taught that he'd come as a king. I'd been taught that he'd subdue the Romans. 
I'd be taught life would be better, more money, more ease, more prestige, more power. To trade that in for if a Roman soldier tells you to carry his pack one mile, which he could legally do, when you get to the end of that one mile, turn at him and say, this thing's heavy. Could I carry it for you one more mile? That's a little different situation. That's what this Messiah brought. He brought the joy of going down and loving as a servant, not the pressed, the power, uh, the pomp of going up and having servants. But I want you to know, for that period of time from when Jesus inaugurated his ministry as mediator, after a period of time, a new form of mediation came in, which was not a true form. And men were told they had to confess their sins to a man. And in this presentation, I have a picture. It's a picture of a confessional. Should we be surprised that during Jesus' ministry of mediation, a false form of mediation is developed by the church? Listen, it was the church that took Jesus' life. Let's not refer to them as, a, uh, as the Jews or the Hebrews. That was God's church in the wilderness. That was God's church. That was God's family. And you know, the New Testament church is God's family. And Paul will actually reference to us as descendants of Abraham. The ones who actually believe and let their heart be touched by the Holy Spirit, they become true Jews. But during that period of Christ's mediation, a false form of mediation was instituted. And instead of going directly to God where the secrets of your life could be kept and the dignity of your humanity could be preserved from somebody else's ears and somebody else's lips, the extortioning ability of someone who knew things about you to take something from you, whether it was money or innocence or whatever it might be. Yes, during those, that period of time, that 1,800 years, man was robbed of knowing that he could go straight to God. And this is part of what the Reformation opened back up. But I want you to know, the New Testament clearly understands the centrality of the, of the tabernacle, of the sanctuary. This is the main point. Listen, if you read a book, and you know you're going to be tested on it, and you read that phrase, this is the main point. You perk up and listen. The things we are saying, we have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which who erected? The Lord and not man. I'm not sure how modern New Testament theologians can read over this, knowing the centrality of the tabernacle and the sanctuary in the Jewish experience, and not catch the simple, plain phrase. Moses was making what he made after a pattern. Paul is telling us the original is in heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, speaking of Jesus, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law who serve the copy, talking about the earthly sanctuaries, and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, reminding us what was said to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now listen, friends, let's not make it complex. Let's leave it simple. When God said in Exodus 25, 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell amongst them, it's clear. The same God who walked in the Garden of Eden wanted to walk with them all the way to the Promised Land. That same God wants to walk with you every day of your life. 
But when he told them to make a sanctuary, the other authors of the Bible will make it very clear. You can't build me a building that would really hold me, but I want to be with you. So I'm going to give you a representation. That storyline of sacrifice, mediation, and vindication, the judgment that's designed to vindicate us, that is the simplest storyline of salvation there is. But there's problems with it. The problem is, is that if you follow that storyline all the way from the cross, which is on earth and represents the outer courtyard, there's not going to be any death in heaven. Jesus' ministry transitions up to heaven where He makes a way for us to be right in the presence of the Father. He came down to represent God to us. He goes back up there to represent us to God. It's a glorious story. But this centrality of the sanctuary never goes away. As a matter of fact, when the New Testament tells us that the New Jerusalem comes down, the city's dimensions... Now follow me. On earth, there's three compartments. Outer courtyard where you have the sacrifice. Holy place where you have a relationship restored through the mediator. And the most holy place where God deals with the sin problem, vindicates His people and puts the finger right back on Satan. He's the one that got all this going. When we go to heaven, we lose the outer courtyard. It's done. Jesus only had to die one time. Praise the Lord. But I want to tell you something. When the whole story is over, you don't need a holy place anymore. So when the new Jerusalem comes down, all that separates us is history. And now all you have is a city whose size is a perfect cube which happened to be the exact dimensions of the most holy place in Solomon's temple. So you see this progressive letting go of things. But we never have to let go of the presence of God in the most holy place. That's the privilege we get back. It's an amazing progression. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry. It's for you. It's for me. Inasmuch as he's mediator of a better covenant. What's the better covenant? The better covenant, friends, is the fact that Jesus isn't up there saying, we killed a ram, we killed a lamb, we killed a goat. No, he's up there saying, this is my blood, these are my people. They're your people, Father. They've come to me. They want to be different. I can do it. He's a mediator of a better covenant. We have someone who knows what it feels like to be tired and alone and rejected he was tempted just like you and me, only his temptations were so much greater than yours and mine. We will never understand it. Indeed. So let's come boldly, but I've got to keep moving on. This is easy to go to here, Judaism 101. I didn't pluck this out of obscurity. I want to make sure you know that. I didn't have to search hard to find it. The very first website I looked at today, which was not this one, but the very first one that comes up when you Google uh, Daniel 9, and Jesus in prophecy, the very first one that comes up is going to give you all the reasons why it doesn't point to Jesus. And probably the second and the third one are too. I didn't have time to read through them. But this one here is not an out-of-the-way website. You just check out Judaism 101. I'm bringing it up for a reason. This just happens to be on Prophets and Prophecy. You can see that it's entitled, What is a Prophet? I just want you to see that because I need to make a point. They're going to list all of the prophets. You may not be able to read that, but it starts at Abraham and it makes it down to Jehaziel, the Levite. And then we come up here and you can see Hosea up here at the top and we get all the way down to Haggai. And let's go a little farther. Haggai's back at the top and we get all the way down to Esther and it ends 
And Daniel's name's not on the list. Why is Daniel not a prophet? Well, let's go a little farther. I'm often asked why the book of Daniel is included in the writings, not the prophets section of the Bible. Wasn't Daniel a prophet? Weren't his visions of the future true? According to Judaism, Daniel is not one of the 55 prophets. Now, this is an interesting phenomenon. His writings include visions of the future, which we believe to be true. However, his mission was not that of a prophet. I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar would agree. His visions of the future were never intended to be proclaimed to the people. I don't think that's how Nebuchadnezzar related to them. As a matter of fact, at the end of one of the visions, he basically says, you know, you don't believe in Daniel? We're going to make your houses into a dunghill, and we're going to chop you up into pieces. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar made sure everybody in his realm knew that Daniel's God was unlike any other God. They were to be written down for future generations. Thus, they are writings, not prophecies, and are classified accordingly. A sage said, May the curse of heaven fall upon those who calculate the date of the advent of the Messiah and thus create political and social unrest among the people. If you want to get my references later on, you can do that. And then a most amazing thing occurs in the ninth chapter of Daniel. Daniel, We're told when the Messiah would come. But instead of explaining it to us, our rabbis curse anyone wanting to find it out. And then Rabbi B. Uh, Nachmani said in the name of Rabbi Jonathan, Blasted be the bones of those who calculate the end. Some of our rabbis in a further attempt, now this is a Jewish rabbi who became a Christian, Alfred Eldersheim, in a further attempt to keep us from Daniel, even stated that Daniel was, what's the last word? Wrong. Later rabbinicism, which naturally enough could not find its way through the messianic prophecies of the book, declared that even Daniel was mistaken. So friends, if you can't take the Bible as the cornerstone of your faith, you're stuck with different authorities. And Jesus has opened up a way for us in the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest, understanding our frailties. And yet during the 1800 years before he began another work in conjunction with mediation, men and women were taught that instead of going to God, which is what Jesus opened up on the cross, they had to go through a man. 2,300 days is a long prophecy with 490 broken off. And they're all pointing in the first almost 500 years to something God did not want to be a secret. Now when Pastor Andy put up his first quiz tonight, he asked if God works in secret. And we've been quoting Amos 3.7 quite a little bit. For the, surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing. Do you think sending His Son to the world, which is the hinge on which our hope and the, and the evidence of God's true character swings, the door of hope swings on the presence of God to take our sin and to be a perfect representation of His Father and an explanation of what mankind could have been after 4,000 years of, of human degradation? 
Do we really think that God would not do what the rest of the prophets say? The Bible is either a book of fables and well-thought-out lies, or it's the most amazing statement of a God who wanted to make it really clear. You're not sure? Well, just remember this. It's sacrifice in the outer courtyard. It's mediation in the holy place, and it's vindication through judgment if you bring your sins to God in the most holy place. Do you really think that any one of those phases he wanted to be a secret? Do you think when the world was steeped in darkness, when it was when it was like a heavy hand of ignorance on the hearts and minds of men, when they could be extorted for money in the name of salvation, you don't think people who laid down their lives, burned at the stake, had their heads chopped off, and were tortured on the rack, you think they did all that for nothing? Or do you think they were bringing back to life the sentiments of the prophets so people could know God loves them, you can go straight to Him, and you've got something better you can look forward to if you're safe in the arms of Jesus? Listen, friends. You don't have to be able to put all the math down on the paper. But if you want to study it out, the math is good. You don't have to be able to go back and dig up all the history. But I want to tell you, if you do, the history is good. And whether there's, you know, when we, when we realize there's almost 6,000 manuscripts to tell the New Testament story, I want to assure you, God has protected the message and He's raised people up and He's going to raise a whole bunch more up. This Seventh-day Adventist church follows a lineage of Protestant Reformation preaching that restores the doctrines of righteousness by faith and baptism and holiness. These things are the shoulders of great men and women that we're standing on. And the sanctuary doctrine is the doctrine for the last days because it describes when probation is coming to a close, when the final door of the final invitation of mercy is going to end. When this work began in 1844, God was waking the world up and He was letting everyone know. When Jesus began showing so that He could begin closing things down, turning things into a concluding moment in anticipation of His coming. God wanted the world to know. Now I keep promising you that I'll show you William Miller's tent. Largest tent. Could hold 3,000 people. Miller, who became the laughingstock of America, was God's choice instrument to make sure everybody knew The final ministry of Christ was getting underway, even though Miller himself didn't know how to explain it. October 22, 1844 was a huge disappointment for thousands of Bible-believing Christians who had actually been kicked out of their churches because they dared to follow the Spirit through the Word. Friends, tonight... I'm inviting you to follow Jesus all the way to your heavenly home. He took your sins and went to the cross. He went back to heaven so you could talk directly to His Father who is now your Father. And tonight, He's asking you to let Him lead in all of the details of your life. To trust you. To trust Him. Jesus will come soon. You know, Even the doomsdayers have their clock and they're constantly moving it. How many minutes to midnight? How many seconds? I don't know when Jesus is going to leave the most holy place and declare to all of the angels it's finished. But I know this. Everybody ought to know before it is finished. And I'm appealing to those of you listening to me tonight on the internet 
whether it's in this auditorium or it's somewhere around the world, a time-delayed view, we must reconstitute the focus of our lives to make sure the Word gets out. Our churches must come back to life. Our Bible study must be refocused. We can't take advantage of all the wonderful opportunities that a booming economy is giving us. Tremendous opportunities, they may be. Some of them should be followed because God is in them and some of them should be ignored because God is not. So I'm appealing to you tonight, friends. We're not in a position where we can neither confirm or deny. We are in a position where we can state with confidence. God knows the end from the beginning. He came on time. He's been working for our restored relationship and He will come again just as He said. And the time is soon. Let's pray. Lord, bless these brothers and sisters of mine that have gathered. I pray may we not live in spiritual doubt because we can't make up our minds. May we not let pride, love of the world, separate us from the call to go to higher ground in Jesus Christ. Bless us now, Lord. We only have two nights left. Bless every person that's gathered in this room, Lord. Give them the efficiency they need to make up for all the things that aren't getting done while they're here. And I pray give them a sweet peace as daily they just refocus and resurrender. I want to go with them, Lord. I want to see you face to face. Help us as we announce the good news that everybody's, that somehow God's going to get the message out. Please don't pass us by, Lord. Forgive us when we haven't done it. And please use us, I pray, to share the beauty, the hope, in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with you, friends. It's only two more nights. Don't give up now. We'll have a strong finish. Tomorrow night, I'm going to talk about the eternal gospel. Those angels are flying in heaven having the eternal gospel. What is it? How can we explain it? And what does it mean? I hope to see you tomorrow night at 645. God be with you.